the word of the Lord. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up by God, caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now, war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. A serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So reads God's Word. As we begin this morning, we're 
We're still in that interlude that surrounds the seventh trumpet, but, but now we come to Revelation 12, which is a, a significant chapter in this letter. Revelation 12 has always been, consciously or not, considered as the center and the key to the entire book of Revelation. That's a quote from Greg Beale, so I'm going to read it one more time. Revelation 12 has always been, consciously or not, considered as the center and the key to the entire book. It speaks of the rage of Satan against God and against his son and against his saving plan and against his people who are rescued by that plan. It shows that he, Satan, stands behind all of the evil in this world. And it identifies the power of God's people over his fury through the saving work of Christ. It identifies the power of God's people over satanic fury through the saving work of Christ. Revelation 12 is the heart of this letter. That needs to sink in because we've seen many significant parts to this letter. This is the transition. It's the midpoint. We just heard at the end of chapter 11 about the return of Christ and now we're starting a new series of visions and we're not sure what to do with those or where to put them chronologically because we are so inclined to try to put this book together chronologically. But really, it's more of a thematic arrangement that John is pursuing here in Revelation, and we see that as chapter 12 begins. And on the heels of the triumph and celebration that we heard at the end of chapter 11, chapter 12, again, starts a new vision that is recognized by many commentators to be the very center point of the book. More than just in terms of content, that it's in the middle, but it stands center stage with a very important word of instruction to the church. And more than that, to continue quoting Beale, chapters 12 through 22, the vision that begins here in chapter 12, continues. It starts a, a, a big thematic shift. Chapters 12 to 22 tell the same story as chapters 1 through 11 but explain in greater detail what chapters 1 through 11 only introduce and imply. Chapter 12 now reveals that the devil himself is the deeper source of evil in this world. And it plays that out as a drama with actors on a stage. This explains why the return of Christ stands in the middle of this letter. Seems like it should be right at the end. But now, having gotten there, having arrived at that point, we need to take a step back and, and see what led us there and drill deeper and understand what's going on at this time, at this point of history, in this redemption that God has provided, and to see how this whole era, this whole age has played out. In summary, this chapter gives us a profound spiritual analysis and even theological analysis of what's happening in this fallen world in the sufferings of God's people. 
Why is that happening? Have you ever heard the question? Have you ever asked it? Why is there so much evil in the world? Friends, if I could form one answer to that question, it would just be the content of Revelation 12. Why is there so much evil in the world? Here it is. The Word of God answers that question. Oh, it, it spreads out through the Scriptures. It has tentacles that reach all the way through the Word of God. But here it is. Here's why. So in summary, this chapter gives us a profound spiritual, even theological analysis of what's happening in this fallen world in the sufferings of God's people, Old Testament and New Testament alike, Old Covenant people, New Covenant people. What we're given are the rudiments, the ABCs, if you will, trite as that sounds this morning, the ABCs of spiritual opposition, of, of spiritual battle, of spiritual warfare, of satanic fury against the, state, the saints. We see first the appearance of satanic fury, then the basis of satanic fury, and also the means of conquering satanic fury. That's the outline that you see printed in your bulletin, and that's the one we're going to use. Note that we don't progress in order this morning. We'll look at verse 1 through 6 with the appearance of satanic fury, then the basis of satanic fury is verses 7 to 9, and then again in 12 through 17, because you can hear as you read this that 12 to 17 seems to repeat what the first part of the chapter says. And then standing in the middle of that, the heart of this chapter is the means of conquering satanic fury. That's verses 10 and 11, and we'll finish there this morning. Notice that the key players here are introduced as signs, verses 1 and 3. This, this suggests that John is seeing them as illustrations, as representations of something other. So the identity of these characters, this woman, verse 1, and this dragon, verse 3, their characters are secondary to, or perhaps it's even better to say, are best understood by what they represent. And what they represent is namely, in short, as we will see, the people of God and the enemy of God, respectively. The woman representing the people of God, the dragon representing the enemy of God, in broadest of terms, and then we'll see how this plays out in how John has been led by the Spirit of God to write this chapter. So let's consider the ABCs of spiritual warfare and recognize, even as we make that statement, we can get caught in all of the complexities of Revelation 11, but as we transition into the text and say, let's consider the ABCs of spiritual warfare, it should catch the ear of every believer saying, wait a minute, this is instruction on just the basics of our battle against the enemy? And the answer is yes, that's exactly what it is. Let's consider the ABCs of spiritual warfare first, the appearance of satanic fury, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1 begins, and a great sign appeared in heaven. By the way, that is a familiar word, isn't it, from John? John used the word sign in his gospel to talk about the miracles of Jesus, those indicators that pointed to Jesus' true identity and affirmed him as the one in whom we find saving belief. So a great sign appeared in, woman, uh, in heaven, and this sign, a woman... 
And a pretty grand woman she was, clothed in the sun, so she was radiant, shining, hard to see, with the moon under her feet, an image that seems to suggest dominion of some sort. But it's not until we see her headdress that we get an idea of who she is or who she represents. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. This whole picture reminds us a bit of Joseph's dream, the sun and moon stars, Genesis 37. And here, with, with the crown, perhaps reminds us a bit as well of Song of Solomon. It seems to be drawn from there, some of that imagery in Song of Solomon 6. But with what follows, our next thought would be, this is Mary delivering Jesus. Or, or maybe better, this is Old Testament Israel, the, the community out of which the Messiah was provided or into which he was born. But then as we get further into the story, to things that are revealed a little bit later in this chapter, we see that her male child will rule all the nations, reminding us of Psalm 2 and other texts, and that her enemy went off to make war with the rest of her offspring, verse 17. So her male child will rule all the nations, verse 5, the enemy went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. And that seems to mean, at that point in the chapter, the church, true believers in Messiah Jesus from all the nations. So we see, with all of this put together, that she represents the united people of God once again, Old Testament and New Testament, just as do so many of the other corporate images here in this book. We're seeing the people of God unified now in Christ just as Paul wrote to the Ephesians would happen. One new man made out of the two, together in Christ. Verse 2, she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, ready to deliver Messiah. And that's when the second sign appeared. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon calling Leviathan from Isaiah 27 and other places, with seven heads and ten horns, which are called Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel 7. And, and by the way, don't try to do the math. How many horns per head? Apocalyptic just doesn't work like that. And on his head, seven diadems, which is a description that anticipates chapter 13, verse 1, and then again, chapter 17, in the middle, verses 8 through 12. What we see here with the seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, we see the, the epitome of evil rule, of intentionally evil rule. That's the image this red dragon is supposed to awaken within the reader. Verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them 
to earth. Almost certainly this is not a literal description such that we should start figuring how many stars are left in the night sky at this point. Stars have been referred to in chapter 6, in chapter 8, chapter 9. Again, we don't do the math here. We recognize what's being illustrated by this look. This could be some sort of a recall of Satan's original fall, but there's just not a, enough here to know that with certainty. So you mention that possibility, but really what we're supposed to see here is a creature of immense power. And this considerable power is what sets up the next part of the image. It comes to bear on the central and the most grotesque part of this vision. Middle of verse 4, And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Parents are familiar with the setup of the delivery room and of the posture of the mother at the moment of birth. This dragon is crouched in front of her, ready to devour the little one that she delivered. It's absolutely disgusting. But such is the work of the dragon. We now have an image of the dragon, a powerful beast capable of sweeping stars out of the sky with his tail, metaphorically speaking. Remembering that the, the, the tails of the scorpion, that sting like scorpions. I mean, it's an image that conjures up something in our minds. So this dragon of immense power is in this position waiting to devour this child. No chance of escape for an infant, especially with a beast like this and no honoring of the visitation restrictions at the maternity hospital. This is a can't-miss abduction, right? That's what it's supposed to look like. A can't-miss abduction. So what happens next? Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. <laughs> How? That's the question that would fill our minds. How is that possible? Unbelievable. This defenseless child escaped even the slightest harm by an undeniably divine intervention. The evil intent of this powerful dragon was entirely nullified. He may be able to sweep a third of the stars out of the sky with his tail, but he can't do anything to this child. <coughs> Excuse me. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So she is protected 
She's protected and provided for by God Himself through the entire window that we've come to understand is the Great Tribulation, that language that was mentioned back in chapter 7, and now we've seen different manifestations of that period of time, 42 months in chapter 11, three and a half years again in chapter 11, more by insinuation on that particular one, now a time, times, and half a time here in verse 14. Here, verse 6, 1260 days. How many images do we need, though? Having seen this one, this woman taken to a place prepared by God, and she'll be fed there, cared for there for these three and a half years. How many images do we need that our Father will care for His children during every form of end times opposition that mounts and increases throughout this period of the church from the ascension of Jesus to His return? How many images do we need? Because they're starting to stack up here in Revelation. God's people are in His hands. And even in a scenario like this, Described in Revelation 12, the baby wasn't in danger for a moment. One quick clarification before we move on, though. I don't believe this is a picture here of the ascension of Jesus when this child is carried away. It, it can insinuate that. There's no problem. But that also can get in the way of our just appreciating what's going on here. Chapter 12 is, is barely an analogy, although in many respects you could say that it is an analogy, but it's surely not an allegory. And it's important for us to hold on to that as we read this, lest we get caught up in this chapter and try to tie off one-for-one -one correspondence between the different events that happen here and things that have happened in history. All right, when did this take place? That's not treating this text the way it was written to be read. Chapter 12 is surely not an allegory. It's an illustration of God's faithful and complete protection of His people and the preservation of His plan against every form of opposition mounted by Satan to thwart or impede or derail either one of those two, His people or His plan. But it would be a mistake to try to tie off each element of this illustration to some specific historical event. As we said, it's just not written that way. That's not what John seems to be doing here. He's surely covering a wide swath of world history, of redemption history. In fact, I would say that he's covering the full swath of it with this illustration, but not in an allegorical fashion. He's illustrating a reliable truth that will be proven true through historical events. But he's not trying to illustrate a sequence of particular historical events. He's giving us a summary bottom line of what's reliably known in this time, in this period. Surely, if he were giving us an illustration of a sequence of particular historical events, he would not omit every single part of Jesus' redemptive work between His birth and His ascension. He wouldn't leave out the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus if He were trying to build an allegory. The absence of that is what helps us see 
wow, we're just seeing satanic power aimed at God and his people not working in a can't-miss situation. All right, now, now we're starting to hear Revelation 12. So let's move on now from the appearance of satanic fury to the basis of satanic fury. Verses 7 through 9. In verses 7 through 9, we see action played out in heaven, action that reminds us a bit of, of the prophet Daniel, chapter 10, chapter 12. It sounds a bit as well like, like the book of Jude, verse 9, the, the archangel Michael contending with the devil, as we read there. What it means precisely is unclear. To quote a couple of commentators in a row here, let me just say that some uh, interpreters understand it to refer to this description, to refer to a primordial battle between God and uh, Satan, between the angels of heaven and the fallen angels of hell. And we see the original fall of Satan here, perhaps. And from things we can piece together from the Scriptures, there are echoes of that, and that's, it's possibly the background, the illusion. But again, if we hear that and try to turn it into that as the primary thing we're learning here, we miss the point. Others see in it an eschatological conflict, so an end times conflict, not the beginning, but closer to the end, not the final judgment of Satan, but his defeat as the end times period begins. Still others see Satan's defeat through Jesus' earthly ministry. So not all the way back to the beginning, but in verses 1 through 6, see Satan, an illustration of Satan's defeat at the cross. While the apparent retelling then in verses 7 to 17 depicts his defeat as the great tribulation begins. So you can see it's, it's all over the map, but all of them hold one thing in common. It's the defeat of Satan by the power of God. So wherever this ties off to the beginning, the middle, near the end, or the very end of the story, that's what we see. The actions described as well, and here's a good summary again from Greg Beale this morning. The actions described in verses 7 to 12 are the heavenly counterpart of earthly events recorded in verses 1 through 6. So what's happening right here in chapter 12, though we're not sure exactly where it appears, at least many believe that it's a telling and then a retelling from different angles of the very same reality, the very same defeat. That said, don't get caught up in those details. Verse 9, and Satan was thrown down to the earth with his angels. There's the bottom line. The enemy is facing the beginning of his defeat. He's been expelled from the presence of God, and now he's roaming the earth with rage and fury. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because Satan's been cleared out. He's been expelled. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. So not only is he a defeated foe, he's got limited time. He's got to make the most out of the time that he has available to him. 
That's the scenario that Revelation 12 paints. He's expelled from heaven. He's angry. He wants to attack God in the worst way possible. The best that he can do is attack his covenant people, and he's motivated because he has a limited window. That's what the text gives us. That's the part that's important to hold on to. Rather than trying to build a theology of satanic fury, let's engage the reality of what the Scriptures give us and see what we should do with this. Because this is a fearful word. Scripture itself saying, Woe to you, O earth, and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who gave birth to the male child. Here we start seeing this is the covenant community. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Again, she is supernaturally protected. The first time it was the child. This time the focus is on the woman herself. There's absolutely no time or place, though. This is what we can learn. There's no time and no place where this dragon will gain any advantage whatsoever over this woman or her child. It's just not going to happen. No strategy he pursues will succeed. No amount of power he amasses will be sufficient. And as for this woman, her flight for safety, it, it recalls some of Jesus' end-time sermon from the Mount of Olives back in the Gospels, fleeing from evil. It also conjures up Old Testament images of protection by and from eagles' wings, an image used a number of times through the Old Testament. Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 32, and others. So all of those stand as background. All of those are working in our minds. As we hear delivery by eagles' wings, it's like, oh, man, that's rich. Just because of hearing passages like, I'll bear you up on eagles' wings lest you strike your foot against a stone. So it's also important to say as she's borne up on the wings of an eagle that this woman isn't running scared. She's being protected. This is God's sovereign and supernatural protection of Christ's bride that's being talked about here. And the enemy pursuing her is a defeated foe with limited time to trouble her. That's the picture. Even so, this enemy didn't give up his pursuit. Verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. This serpent... As we see here, you should probably comment, is the same as the dragon. Verse 9 tells us his many identities, which are all really the same one here. Verse 9 says this, 
the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. It's all different names for the same being. But once again, here, don't try to turn this section into an allegory or an analogy. Don't, don't look for a time in world history or in Israel's history where Satan attacked the church or the old covenant people of God with water. It could conjure up images of the Red Sea. It could also conjure up images as we move on into the text of, of the earth opening up and swallowing the rebellious in the days of Moses. Those are, are echoes, surely, but those aren't picked up on here as the primary basis for how to understand this particular text. They just stand there as reminders that, wow, God has done this kind of thing before. This is an image of the fact that the dragon, the serpent, is allowed to have supernatural power at his disposal, but that's still not enough. God can defeat him anytime, anywhere, by any means he chooses. Here, verse 16, the earth came to the help of the woman, opened its mouth, and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Are you getting the picture? There is nothing this dragon can do to cause harm to this woman or her child. Verse 17, the dragon became furious and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's where we see who the offspring of the woman represent. This is the church the one new man, all those who trust in Christ, both Jewish and from the nations. But I think we can know in advance by this point that this dragon isn't going to have any greater success against this community. And John mentions right here precisely why. The same reason is stated more fully back in verses 10 and 11. So right here in 17, we see that it's not going to work, but in verses 10 and 11, then, we are given the basis for why. We're given the means of conquering this satanic fury for this community, the people of God, the woman's offspring. God's deliverance is announced and explained there in verses 10 and 11. Look at that text as we turn our attention now to the conquering of satanic fury. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Ceaseless activity of the enemy seeking to win this battle, this war. Verse 11 and they, that's talking about the offspring of the woman, the covenant community, and they have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Three things to note when it comes to conquering satanic fury. You see them right here, 
Let's work through them one at a time. And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. What do we get? Three things. First, we conquer satanic fury on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. We conquer satanic fury on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. In other words, the very same loving work of Jesus that has freed us from our sins, chapter 1, verse 5, prologue to Revelation, going all the way back to there, and if you go there, you'll see the echoes in the verse. The very same loving work of Jesus that has freed us from our sins in 1.5 established our right to reign with Christ in 1.6, then again in 5.10, echoed in 3.21. The very same loving work of Jesus that has freed us from our sins established our right to reign with Christ and enables us to conquer Satan. That's the first thing to note here. It's on the ground of the blood of the Lamb, the saving work of Christ. It frees us from our sins. It enables us to reign with Him and to conquer His enemy, to live in victory over the dragon. It's the shed blood of Jesus alone, then, that secures our place in heaven and all these other blessings besides It's not our obedience to God, our faithfulness, our acts of charity. It's not our feeding of the hungry or housing of the homeless. These things do reflect a life that has been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, as so much of Scripture tells us. It's not saying those things are unimportant. That's just not how we defeat Satan. We don't defeat Satan by caring well for one another. We defeat Satan first and foremost on the ground of the blood of the Lamb that then turns us into people who love and care for one another. It's one of the manifestations that the blood of Jesus has been applied to us because it changes how we think and how we speak and how we live and how we serve. All of these things reflect a life cleansed by the blood of the Lamb as so much of Scripture tells us. But it's not so much what we do Moving on from the blood of the Lamb, it's not so much what we do that saves us, it's the fact that the blood of the Lamb has become our plea, our hope, our claim before the throne of God. When the blood of the Lamb is our answer to any and all questions of our worthiness before God, Victory over his enemy and ours, secured by the blood of the Lamb, is our right, our inheritance, along with that worthiness. So we're not just made worthy before him by the blood of the Lamb, we are given victory over his enemy and ours by the blood of the Lamb. That's the first thing to note. Second, We conquer satanic fury on the ground of the word of our testimony. That doesn't mean that we share our testimony often. That could be one means by which we do this, but that's not what's being talked about here by John, not just telling our story. 
It means that we bear witness to the gospel. We bear witness to the blood of the Lamb. We follow the Great Commission, we may say. We tell of the great work of God in Christ by which men and women, boys and girls, are reconciled to the true and living God. It's the word of our testimony. And we proclaim it. We proclaim it when people love it, when it's popular and it brings rejoicing and revival. And we proclaim it when people are wearied by it or annoyed or offended or angered and strike back in fury. We proclaim the saving grace of God in Christ. We conquer the enemy by the blood of the Lamb applied to our own account and by the blood of the Lamb proclaimed in a world that desperately needs to hear it. Each time we proclaim it, It deepens and strengthens its message in our own hearts. Like Peter and John answering the rulers and elders and scribes in Acts 4, we must say to anybody who opposes with anger and offense and fury, we say what these two said, whether it's right for us to obey God rather than you, you must judge. But as for us, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's the heart of the church as the end times progress. On the basis of this testimony, then, we conquer satanic fury, even in our day. That's second. Third, and here's the clincher, it's foundational to the other two. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. With apologies to Crossway, sometimes I'm not happy with the ESV translation. I love what NIV says here because it helps us see the point. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Blood-bought believers who proclaim the gospel that saved them even when it brings opposition, they continue to proclaim it, Blood-bought believers who proclaim the gospel that saved them, even when it brings opposition, do so because they're willing to die. They're willing to die. They've come to realize that there are things in this life that are worse than death. That needs to sink in as well. There are things in this life that are worse than death. This is a real issue for the church in many places around the world. Death is the price that they can pay for a faithful walk with God, whether at the hands of family or community or government. 
But even here, where we are not yet in grave danger of losing our lives for the proclamation of the gospel, bearing witness to that gospel still involves our death. In this sense, death to self, to our desires, to our reputation, just as Jesus called us to do. He would come after me, he must deny himself, die to himself, take up his cross, the, the implement of crucifixion, and follow me. So even if we're not in a place in the world that right now death is resulting from faithful witness, we still die in some ways a death that is harder yet. If someone else cuts off one of my limbs, that's done at their selection. If I have to cut it off myself, it becomes much more difficult. But make no mistake, Bonhoeffer said it well, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Revelation 12 is teaching us the same thing. Death to self. If it's more important to us what people think of us than what they think of Jesus, we'll never bear faithful witness. It costs us too much. If fulfilling our personal desires, our plans, pleases us more than pleasing God, we'll never bear witness to the gospel. Again, it costs too much. If proclaiming Jesus means I have to say no to something I really want, because it would get in the way of that proclamation, then either I say no or I don't proclaim the gospel. Because I do love my life so much that I shrink from death. Sometimes it's death itself that scares us most. Just the thought that it might come to the place where we would have to pay with our lives for faithful witness to the gospel. And at those moments, it's the temptation of the church, especially in an environment like ours, it's the temptation of the church to think that somehow this life is more desirable than the one that awaits us. And that's our perspective my brothers and sisters, we will not bear faithful witness to the gospel. It costs too much. I remember hearing D.A. Carson preach this text on one occasion at, at Moody Church. He was there as a guest speaker, just a, a one-off message, and he decided to preach Revelation 12. <laughs> I loved that. He was talking about this, and he said, I'm 57 years old, and most of you know what I've done with my life. There's still time to cheat on my wife. There's still time to grow weary 
of the call of Scripture, of what it looks like to walk with Jesus and to endure in increasingly hostile days, there's still time to turn our backs on that. It can become too heavy and we can think, you know what, forget it. I'm back in. I remember the line from The Matrix, ignorance is bliss. I don't, I don't want to live with the harsh realities of this world as it actually is. Give me any form of deception, any form of intoxication that can, can deaden that and help me think about lesser things because, wow, that's too heavy. My friends, when we love our lives so much that we shrink from death, not only do we not proclaim the gospel, all that comes along with it is forfeited as well. We also will not know the joy, the thrill, the satisfaction, the peace that comes from reconciled relationship with God and conquering power over the enemy. We don't know those things either. It's tragic. But what Revelation 12 is here to tell us is that when we go ahead and compromise with the flesh, we go ahead and embrace the things that satisfy us, recognizing that they don't satisfy or please God. We're not just giving in to the flesh at the moment. We're siding with the enemy of God. That's what Revelation 12 wants us to see, that this being is behind all of the evil that is present in this world, such that choosing the evil over the call of Christ is siding with the enemy. Revelation 12 is a strikingly significant chapter, standing in the middle of this letter but it's also a stunningly relevant word of instruction for us, for the church in every age, regarding the nature of our lives as spiritual warfare on every level. That is our life right now, spiritual warfare on every level. Scripture itself tells us that, and yet we're inclined to disbelieve. We tend to think of Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 as the spiritual warfare passage, and surely there is no better text for practical instruction on what to do and on what's important. Clothing ourselves with the armor of God through prayer in order to stand firm in our day, that's all vital for every Christian. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That's Ephesians 6. But Revelation 12, it's Revelation 12 that gives us an idea of the nature of of spiritual warfare, of its intensity, of the inescapable reality of spiritual warfare in the life of the church and in the life of every individual Christian. 
Satan is enraged against us because he's a defeated foe and therefore he knows his time is short. He gets it. Does the church? When we do notice the reality of spiritual warfare or the presence of spiritual warfare, we tend to soften our view so that we don't sound like fanatics. We say something like, I don't want to suggest that there's a demon behind every bush, but... And then we go on to describe whatever we're seeing right now as spiritual pushback, spiritual opposition, spiritual warfare. I do this myself. Diminishing the undeniable importance of and reality of the enemy of God standing behind the evil that's in this world. What we see here in Revelation 12 is that the enemy is behind the advance of all the evil in this world. All of it. Even that which resides in our own hearts. That's not a transfer of blame. That's collusion being described. We really do wrestle against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We really do all the time. That's precisely what characterizes this age of tribulation between the ascension of Jesus and his return. And increasingly so as that time progresses. And that's why we see such manifestations of evil in this world that God created as good. Revelation 12 tells us. So, my friends, let me urge you as we finish today, let me urge you, even plead with you, in addition to suiting up in the armor of God through prayer, Understand, understand to the depth of your being for your own good and for the good of the church that we're in a spiritual battle every day of our lives and moment by moment through each of those days. That's what Scripture teaches. That's what Revelation 12 confirms. And we conquer, we conquer the enemy only by the blood of the Lamb applied to us by faith. And the word of our testimony to that blood that is enabled only as we do not love our lives so much as to shrink from death, only as we die to self just as Jesus taught. I'm exercised this morning. I could keep preaching. <laughs> Thank you, Brent. If it were just you and me in the room, I'd keep going. But I would say that at this point, let's now give our time and attention to remembering the body and blood of the Lord. Let's give thanks for the blood of the Lamb 
that has given us life and protection from our enemy. And let's do so with hearts filled with joy for this work. Pray with me now, if you would. And as I do, musicians and communion servers, please join me at the front. Heavenly Father, what a text this is, what a reminder to the church, what a word of instruction. Lord God, we know this. This is one of those theological truths that if it appeared on an exam, we would get the question right. But when it comes to our lives day in and day out, we barely remember, if ever, that there's an enemy present. Heavenly Father, enable your church to trust Christ as Savior and Lord. And in that, Father, I'm not suggesting that any of us who have rejoiced in our sins forgiven in Christ aren't genuinely converted as we expect. I'm just reminding all of us, those who have not trusted Christ as well as those who have, that the salvation that comes to us in Him bears fruit. Fruit that will last. Fruit that we desperately need in order to live in a manner worthy of our calling in this day. Father, strengthen us even as we remember the death of our Lord in communion. the praise of your grace by which we are saved and in the name of your son our lord jesus christ we pray amen